Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting I got an interesting email from a woman who said, Carol, I love your show. I love what you do for partners. I love what you do with addicts. I love what you do with couples. But I got some um, I have some advice. So I'm, I'm took a deep breath, and what I heard from her made a lot of sense. She said, "A, I don't like your intro; it's triggering." <laughs> and actually, what we did with that is, um, I used to be on uh, Drive Time Radio, and so I had um, a producer put that together in general, for all mental health issues. And since I did have the trucker that had called in, which she really found triggering, I thought that was a good example of how men, based on their occupation, could have difficulty. Okay. So I'm looking at creating a new intro. I'll miss this one, but I'm looking at it. The other thing she said is something that I've known, and she says, you know, your quality of sound isn't that great. And I don't know what it is because I've got a Yeti. I'm in a very secluded corner. Um, and most people do call in, but that's similar to other podcasts with, with the exception of Zoom. And I've tried that too. Didn't find it to be any better. So I'm going to look into that for you all. See if we can't get that quality better. And the third thing she said um, was, I think you should just cut to the chase and, and interview your guests and not talk so much at the beginning. Now, I really thought about that because there's a part of me that says, 
I've been in this business a long time, and I want my listeners to know who I am, to know what I'm doing, to know what I'm struggling with, uh, to know when I might be changing platforms for podcasting, you know, whatever it is. And so I don't know if I'm going to change that. I'll shorten it. You know, one of the things I definitely appreciate is that when somebody gives me some advice, I take it to heart. And so I just wanted to let you know, listener, as well as for the rest of my listeners, that I, I do take it to heart. And we'll be looking at a few things. I've already, I already have them. I spent part of this week doing that. So that being said, I've got a great guest on today. He wrote a book, um, and it it's about, obviously, a topic that we don't do a lot of talking about, although he referred me to my last um, client that was sexually abused as a child, right? And so he referred me to him, and now we're talking about it, gosh, maybe six weeks later. I'm going to have Doug Carpenter on, and he's talking about The Secret Shame, his book, A Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development. Now, what she knows is that anytime somebody is abused, that secret shame just is, it becomes a part of them. It lies deep within them, and especially for men, there are very few resources out there. Um, his research shows that it takes about an average of 25 years before they disclose the hurt and the pain they've endured and carried by sexual abuse perpetrated by another male. And so he's made it his mission to get this book out there so that he can end some of that secrecy and any shame that goes along with that. I really, really appreciate his dedication to this field. And what we know about addiction is that for many addicts, they have a trauma like this. They have a physical, a sexual, or an emotional abuse that that perpetuates that need for numbing. And so when you've been abused as a child, male or female, you have a tendency to want to numb out and medicate that. And for men, especially who don't have the resources, there feels like there's nothing less than they can do than than numb out by drugs or alcohol or sex. So I just really appreciate, again, Doug Carpenter's take on this. Since I ran a sexual abuse program for so many years, I've just found it a beautiful compliment to have that background and then to work with sex addicts. So, Doug, welcome to Sex Health with Carol the Coach. Hello. It's so nice to be with you again. Yes, I know. And you just, you're just a master at putting literature together that really helps men and women understand what's happened to them. I mean, your field is male-oriented, but I talked to a few women who have read this guide to help understand their husbands. So kudos to you. Let's talk a little bit about 
why you wrote this guide. Well, so for the last 25 years, I have mostly worked with men, but also some women. Um, and I started out in the field working in with addiction. And oftentimes in the process of working with someone with an addiction, they would often tell me uh, about their sexual abuse and that they've never, ever told anyone. And I think you read in the introduction that um, several research studies have identified that men wait 25 to 26 years before they ever disclose. And oftentimes mm-hmm. they, just, they disclose that because they've landed up in treatment treatment for their drug addiction or their alcohol addiction or even their sex addiction. Um, And that's when it will first come out that they were sexually abused as a child. And so um, in my early days of working in the the field of addiction, and I had written my dissertation on sexual abuse and uh, and it was an examination of the laws, Um, So this was kind of on my radar. I just kept hearing this same message about males who were abused and holding on to this secret and all the things that they did to try to deal with the pain. And so I also became very interested in treating men who had been sexually abused, not just along the addiction route. But I never could find uh, a text or a book that I could refer them to that really helped them understand the link between their own experience of sexual abuse and then how they ended up being an addict of some kind, or especially a sex addict. There was no one out there helping them understand to create that link. So after years and years and years of (laughs) treating people, I decided that, well, since I can't find a good textbook, I'm going to write one. So that's what led me to writing this book. Um, The book took about six years to write. I read hundreds and hundreds of research articles, um, anything I could get my hands on um, about male sexual uh, addiction and uh, male sexual abuse. You know, in in this field, there's kind of a dearth of, uh, there's tons of information about females who've been sexually abused and the impact that it's had, but there's much less focused on male sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so as I continued to try to read every article I could get my hands on, I just started creating the book, and uh, the book just kept growing and growing and growing with the amount of information that I had and the insights that I was have, having as I wrote the book. But you're right, it's, it's a conglomeration of a lot of research studies. Um, there are 13 uh, men who I have treated or been acquainted with who are willing to tell their stories in detail, and those are used for examples inside the book. But it's not just their sexual abuse story. It specifically examines how their sexual abuse story led to the addiction that's in their life, and especially the sexual addictions in their life, and the sexual dysfunction that is in their life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, let me ask you, because this book is so comprehensive. It really is a survivor's guide, and it really does help to understand male sexual abuse and that male sexual development. And and so much of it has to do with shame. I want to ask you, 
I've heard two schools of thought. I've heard that sex addicts do not necessarily have trauma in their backgrounds. Many of them do, but certainly not all. And then I just heard from somebody else that I admire and, and thinks the world of, and he said all sex addicts have sexual trauma in their past. Now, you know, that may not be perpetration. That may be sex play right. that they felt guilty about. That may be sexual development that they didn't understand. I mean, it does not have to be a molestation. But Correct. What, what percentages do the research show of men that struggle with sexual abuse? And then what do you think is the role of shame in that? Well, I, I will tell you that one of the, one of the major um, studies that is out shows that um, 40% of men who are sexually abused are asymptomatic. So I don't want to, you know, give the impression that everyone out there who's been sexually abused ends up with, you know, tons of shame or some kind of addiction or some kind of problematic behavior. The studies show 40% do not have symptoms and are able to recover with their own resiliency. But that means 60% of people who are abused do struggle with some kind of lifelong pain uh, or addiction, shame. Um, I would say the majority of people who are struggling with their past abuse, it holds a lot of shame for them. And even the child who isn't sexually abused, but uh, or, or the person who's a sex addict who wasn't sexually abused, if you look back in their history, a lot of times they were somehow exposed to pornography, let's say. And even that mm-hmm. can be shaming as a very young age, or it can be shaming by the person who exposed you to the pornography. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say in everyone's story, there's some degree of shame involved in that. You know, I've treated a lot of men, too. I wrote my first book was about just childhood trauma, and in that book I talked a lot about how a lot of boys are growing up with without a good, strong role model as a father and then somehow fell into, into pornography as a way to self-soothe. Well, there's still shame in the base of that because of not having a father, not having a male influence in your life. So I think in everyone's story, there's some degree of shame that that drives the the story, that creates the energy for um, problematic behaviors. But especially with people who have been sexually abused, there's a high degree of shame, and that shame can even become, you know, what what we've talked about uh, in the field is complex trauma. But there's a concept in my book called shame as self. And so these people become to believe that not only is what happened to me shameful, but that I am shameful, I'm shameful, I'm intrinsically full of shame, and others see me as shame. So for the sexually abused person, there's a high degree of shame. Part of the reason for that with males, and we can probably talk about this more when we get into some of the reasons um, for this, but in the book, I talk about the myth of complicity. It's difficult for males who have been sexually abused because of the way our bodies are designed. Our genitalia are external. They're easily aroused by the touch or the thought. 
Um, and so males who are sexually abused, their body responds to touch. Their body responds to their perpetrator. And sometimes that just means arousal, erection. Sometimes it means ejaculation, depending on the age of the child. Sometimes the child has unexplainable physical, sexual, emotional feelings that they don't know how to explain because of the age that they're at. But somehow this also feels pleasurable on some level. And so they become full of shame, thinking that, well, I don't think I should be doing this with this person, but yet there's also something enjoyable because this person is touching me in a way that feels good and my body is responding to it. So that is a huge shame factor for men. Yeah, I know. That's true with females, too. And they have that same confusion. What I hear Mm -hmm. you saying, and I research suggests this, I know you're saying the genitalia is outside of the body, but I also really feel like men have more, or boys have more experience with sexual gratification anyway. They're a little more Mm -hmm. comfortable with it. But when they've been, even at age five or six, it's not unusual for a small boy to be masturbating and not even knowing it or not worrying about it. I mean, so they, they've learned how to, how to self-soothe. So I get that when they have that kind of perpetration or exploitation or molestation, um, mm-hmm. it gets very confusing. Do you right. think... Do you think that leaves them at a young age feeling shame? Oh, absolutely. I I think they feel shame because if they intrinsically or even have been taught about something about touch, good touch, bad touch, um, Mm -hmm. they can feel shame that this is just happening to them, that this part of their body is exposed, that this part of the body is responding to this person. Um, that can lead to shame. And especially if the boy, you know, the perpetrator is a male, the boy then might feel like, well, I'm, he may think in his head, I'm a male, I'm supposed to like girls, and yet my body's responding to this male perpetrator. And then that in and of itself causes shame. Or it can even be, you know, I some of the men that I use in the book are actually uh, are gay, but they would even talk about the shame that it it would involve because this person was older or they didn't feel like they should be responding this way to a person in authority. Um, This is not somebody who they were supposed to be sharing a sexual experience with. And so even that then compounds the shame that they feel. And so they start to think, well, then they're, there must be something wrong with me. I'm bad because why did my body respond to something that was really kind of taboo? Yeah, that makes so that's, a lot that's of sense. Difficult, that's difficult for them. And, um, you know, the, going back to that concept of the myth of complicity, when when the body responds or the male ejaculates, they think, well, then I was somehow a part of this. I must have wanted this. 
I must have done something to attract my perpetrator. I must have done something to show him that I was open to this. And then when he started it, my body responded to him. So I'm just as guilty. And so there's another layer of shame that somehow I contributed to this and I kept it going. So let's talk about that for a minute, Doug, because you talk about the myth of complicity. And for some of our listeners, they may never have known what that was about. So share a little bit about that myth. (coughs) Well, um, that I was complicit in this, that um, another part of that is that I didn't say no. Mm -hmm. Well, kids cannot consent to sexual acts. You know, no kid is ever complicit, even if they go willingly with their perpetrator, even if it comes to the point where they initiate with their perpetrator because it's become something special uh, between the two of them. Um, or the perpetrator might tell them this is the way we express love to one another. But a child can never consent. You are never complicit in in this act. Um, the 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 adult in the situation is responsible to keep you safe. So just because you went with the person, just because you didn't say no, just because your body's responding, none of that means that you were complicit. That's all a myth in your own head. You know, as we grow in age, we look back on our childhood and we tend to impose adult-like thinking onto our inner children, our, our inner mm-hmm. child. You know, and so, so many men will look back and be like, I don't know why I didn't hit him or, or kick him or scream no and tell him no. And, and I have to take them back and think, think of how big you were at six and how big was your voice. Did you, how, how could you have said no? This person had you trapped. They had groomed you. You were not complicit in this because you didn't say no. You couldn't say no. And, and so that's really important, too, when it, when it goes back to that shame concept of not being able to say, say no. You know, people have shame because they didn't say no. You can't say no mm-hmm. as a child when you're, when you're caught in a no-win situation. Well, you know, I hear the passion in your voice, and I'm thinking if I were a male and it's taken me 25-plus years to come out and talk about my sexual abuse, I would be so elated and feel so gratified that there was somebody with your passion that really understood how I felt. And really, you're doing reparative work from the get-go because you're – normalizing a lot of these feelings and then you're you're taking them off the hook of feeling responsible because they yes. weren't responsible they were they killed. were not responsible yeah uh-huh. you know when Absolutely. i begin to work with people i i tell them you through this process you have learned to lie to yourself so well trying to figure out what happened you know you've been lied to by the perpetrator then you lied to yourself by telling you yourself that, okay, I, I must have brought this on. I must have given off some signal. I should have said no. I, you know, 
kept this going because the attention that I wanted from him as a man came with the sex. So I gave in to the sex just to keep the male bonding. So therefore, Mm -hmm. that's my fault too. And so it's just layer and layer and layer upon lies that the person has told themselves. And so in therapy, I work with them so much to identify the lies that they've told themselves about this abuse. And Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. fact that you cannot consent to these things as a child. You never consented to these things. You can't legally consent to these things. And so it's undoing all those lies that they've told themselves to actually be able to see this as abuse. I've even had men come in and tell me about abuse experiences and not even label it abuse, that I had to talk them into identifying and being able to see that this was sexually, sexual abuse. You were molested by this person because they, they don't so- even have that frame of, of thinking. And this happens especially when, like, a boy is abused by maybe an older brother or an older neighbor. You know, they're somehow convinced, well, wasn't this just sex play between two kids? And oftentimes, no, it's not, because this older child or even maybe a same-age child, if that person possesses way more knowledge than you have in a certain area – they start a manipulative grooming process to be able to engage in this act with you. And that's abuse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the and and is, so many men don't can't even label it as abuse until they get far into this process and that you clear out all those lies and those myths. Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to ask you because, you know, you just brought up what if it's brother on brother and, and of course they're groomed and, and certainly it's confusing when it's father or uncle or grandfather or stepfather mm-hmm. on all those issues or somebody older in the neighborhood. And, and I do believe our listening audience has heard some of that from other people, but do you, since you wrote this book and really looked at the research, um, do you think there are cultural issues that affect um, men in terms of their own understanding of sexual abuse and exposure? Absolutely. In one study that I'll just cite um, specifically mm-hmm. was <clears throat> when I began to look at other cultures, one that stood out to me was the Jamaican culture because Jamaican boys are taught that any sexual activity is initiation that it's not abuse they don't even really use the word abuse that any sexual contact with another person whether it be male or female and no matter what the age of the other person that they are to consider that initiation you are being initiated into manhood and that to Mm. me just hurt so much for that culture and those little boys who are experiencing that because I've had them sit in my office and say and weep that no one would listen to me. No one would acknowledge that I was being abused. No one would hear me and accept it. I was told to be quiet 
that this was just initiation. This is part of growing into being a boy. You know, and then in other cultures, uh, especially like in, in Muslim countries and a lot of Hispanic countries even, you cannot speak of this because you cannot bring shame on the family unit. The, the, not bringing shame on the family, family unit is put above the welfare of the child. And so there are cultural values that, that we have um, that cause problems. An, another one in the Middle Eastern, especially in like Pakistan, Iraq, like that area of the country, there's something called bakabazi, which is, you know, men and women are supposed to remain virgins until marriage. So what will happen is these groups of men will get together, and they it's a lot of sex trafficking. They'll have 13, 14-year-old boys, and they will dress them up like women and sell them and have sex with them. And then that's not considered losing your virginity because you never had sex with a female. You were having sex with really just a 14-year-old boy dressed up like a female. Right, right. Yeah. So and so, our listeners so there are so many ideas. cultural factors here that come into play, you know, with the, with the topic of sexual abuse. Well, and, and, you know, knowing these different cultures, it just shows how, you know, it's not all about the United States. It's about the world and how children are treated, how children are seen, how they're exploited, and um, the values that, that different cultures share. Now, I'm going to ask you, what did you find out was the average age of abuse? And And your book talks about sexual development, so... Share with us how it impacts sexual development. Yeah, so the majority of the research, and there were a lot of articles and studies out there about this, but the majority of the articles indicated that that males are typically abused between the age of eight and nine. That seemed to be the, the average age or the most occurring age at which sexual abuse occurs. You know, it's it's at this point that the boy is um, kind of old enough that the perpetrator can have them participate and do things, but yet they're not yet old enough to fully understand what's going on or old enough to fight back. You know, it was interesting in my research of looking at perpetrators, a lot of perpetrators will stop uh, abusing boys once they get like two or three years into puberty because the boys then start to recognize I can fight back or I can make this stop or I can get out of this. Um, I mean, not all can because of their given situation, but it definitely affects development in that when you get uh, what we call a latency age child, so a child anywhere from six, age six to 12 is that latency period. And during that age, kids are supposed to be really gaining um skills, life skills in the world. That's their focus, learning to be independent, do things for themselves, learn processes, learn, learn to, um, you know, make something. Um, this is where they might start having some interest in, like, how to make themselves breakfast. But you're learning processes. You're not really caught up in 
relationships or sex or, you know, things that are going to start happening in a puberty. But when a boy is abused during those ages, it awakens their sexual curiosity way earlier than it should. And so they may start then engaging in sex with the perpetrator. They may then turn around and introduce it to other children their age. Um, they might might start seeking out pornography um, and other sexually explicit material. They may start having conversations that are of a sexual nature uh, with with people their own age, but also older inappropriate conversations. So it like turns on that sexual drive inside of them much earlier than it should be turned on because they're not even quite yet to puberty. And so then when they hit puberty, their sex drive just goes into overdrive. And that becomes, that's when we start seeing that birth of a sexual addiction because their neural pathways then are just geared and and made toward seeking sex in any avenue they can find it. Hmm. So it, okay. it can greatly affect their development if they're introduced to that at an inappropriate age. Makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm going to ask you, what is the most occurring side effect? of male sexual abuse, when you look at the long-term impact of sex abuse, what's the greatest? Well, through all the, through all the research that I did, naturally the, a lot of the research would interview victims and they would ask them various sets of questions. And the number one thing that continued to come up for men who had been sexually abused was sexual confusion. That was the number one mm-hmm. side effect was um, when they got to an age where, you know, they did hit puberty, they were able to start dating or whatever, but they would feel confused. Like, okay, I haven't been, I haven't done anything with a girl, but for the last four years I've been with guys or I've been with a man who's been doing this with me. And I know my body works with a man and, and I know that it feels good and, and my body responds, but I've never been with a girl. Does this mean I'm gay? Did this make me gay? Was I gay before it and just didn't realize it? Um, So they have all these questions about their sexuality. And so then sometimes they can be fearful of of girls or to be with girls or start interacting with girls. Um, they They may feminize themselves in their own view, like especially boys if they've been penetrated a lot during their abuse they may start to feel like well i'm treated more like a female i maybe i should have been a female because this is how my body gets used so it's sexual confusion was the number one side effect in almost all the research articles that i read Hmm. and so that's another thing in therapy when when these guys come to therapy you really have to work through all these areas of what was your sexual orientation, what was introduced to you that was not part of your orientation, was be, but behavior that you became conditioned to. And then what is your true sexual desire? What do you want for your sex and your sexuality and your sex life and, and, and relationships in your life? All that becomes very blurred. The whole concept of sex and intimacy 
becomes very blurred, and sometimes they don't even understand the difference between the two. Well, that makes a lot of sense, too. Let me remind my listening audience, we're talking with Doug Carpenter, who wrote an incredible book about male sexual abuse. It's called Secret Shame, A Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development. Doug, can you let our listening audience know where they can get the book and how they might contact you if they wanted more resources or to work with you? Absolutely. And I also want to say that there is a 150-page workbook that goes along with the book. It's just called The Secret Shame Workbook. Um, that I also mm-hmm. just released in case a person wants to to read the book and then work through their sexual abuse with the workbook. And it's great to work through it with a therapist as well. Um, you can find both of the books on Amazon. I published them through Kindle, so they're, they're all advertised on Amazon. Um, you can also visit my webpage, which is douglascarpenter.com. And if you you can reach me on my website, there's an email address there where you can email, or you can email me at dr, which stands for doctor, my initials dwc69, that's the year I was born, at meme.com. So drdwc69 at me.com, or visit the website and you can contact me through that. Right, and and so because I have female listeners and male listeners and couples, if uh, I'm, I'm putting myself in a partner's shoes and if he feels like his abuse has really impacted him, what advice would you give her as we begin to wrap up the show? Oh, I would, I would definitely tell her to read the book because he is probably not sharing with her at all what what his thoughts are and the struggles that he has with his own self-concept. And and it may help her gain an understanding, too, if they're having problems in the area of sex, how his past abuse may be currently impacting his willingness to participate or his functioning. It can give her much insight into to what's going on with him and then may provide her a way to be able to approach him about mm-hmm. what he might be experiencing. And then they could seek out professional help to help their marriage and, and their sex life. So I it think that, a lot I, of- you know, I, I wrote the book to really be insightful for not only the man who's experienced a, a family member or a, a wife who is in, in contact with a person who's been abused, but also for clinicians who this isn't their area of expertise, they could really gain a lot from, from the information. Well, absolutely. And again, I really appreciate the fact that you have made this your niche because you really have delved into this more than any book I've seen yeah. um, sexual abuse. So, Doug, I, Dr. Doug, I am just so <laughs> appreciative of the work that you've done. And Thank you. And like you said, men ex- who've experienced sexual abuse deserve to be heard and they deserve to heal. So as we end the show, can you share what you believe their path to healing might look like? Yeah, the path to healing, there's there's a, a research, couple of research articles that I talk in the book. But number one, you have to 
to break through that masculine veneer um, that, you know, society tells men that you have to be strong, uh, you can't be weak, you can't let things like this happen to you. Well, that's not true. You are a child. So getting past that masculine veneer, finding some meaning about what happened, choosing to live well to become a survivor, not a victim, and to then learn to be a thriver, and then learning self-care strategies to care for yourself and to heal the parts of you that have been wounded through this process, and then free yourself up to engage in healthy relationships and share your story with other men. And I know that's a quick synopsis, and there's a ton of work that has to go in to go through those five steps. But it's really finding your voice and working through the lies and the myths so that way you can move into healthy living. Great advice from Dr. Doug Carpenter. And, again, his book is The Secret Shame, A Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development. And then, Dr. Doug, go ahead and tell us, uh, again, that workbook full title is just the secret shame workbook it just goes right along with the book secret shame workbook well excellent you keep us posted on what you're doing next and we so appreciate the fact that you have have made this your niche and you're working so hard to destigmatize the secret shame thank you so much thank you you take care You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So as you can see, um, this is an important topic and one that I know if you're an addict out there listening, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to talk more about it. I'm going to talk more about it. And then it's so easy to retreat into that place where you don't. And so... Create some safe space and some safe people and commit to that time because this doesn't get better if you don't pay attention to it. And you deserve to heal, like Dr. Doug said. You deserve to be hurt. You deserve to heal. And that wounded inner child deserves to be comforted and protected. I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Poach, and... um, as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good week. And we will see you next week when when we hear from a partner who wants to share her story of her multiple betrayals on Sex Health with Carol the Coach. <laughs>